Hey everybody, before we get in, a quick heads up. Uh, David's audio was having some issues due to Skype being Skype, so you might notice that he cuts out from time to time. Hopefully we're going to do future interviews through Discord so that won't happen again. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Cryptids Decrypted, uh, the podcast where we take deep dives into creatures from the fringe of reality and the people dedicated to studying them. Big shout out to our patrons who helped make this happen. And remember, if you want early access to future episodes, check out patreon.com slash Mac Ashton. I am your host, Ashton McCauley, an expert in fictional accounts of mythical creatures. And our first guest is David George Gordon, a renowned author of Field Guides, Recipes for Cooking Bugs, and of course, a manual on how to record evidence of Sasquatch sightings. Welcome, David. Hey, thanks for having me on. This is a thrill. Yeah, no problem. I'm so happy to have you as our first guest. Uh, I was reading a lot about you over the past week, and you're kind of an interesting guy. Can you tell the audience a little bit about your work? Because it kind of runs the gamut. Yeah, well, I have to say I've been a writer for about 40 years, so that in itself is maybe an accomplishment that I've been able to survive that long. But I've <laughs> written about all sorts of stuff. I've actually written 20 books on everything from cockroaches and slugs and snails all the way up to gray whales and orcas and you name it. And of course, the Sasquatch. I've written two books about the Sasquatch, and I'm writing one now about sea serpents. So I finally have gotten to a place where I can write about the stuff that really interests me and not just so much what I think people want to buy. So that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. <laughs> so is the stuff that really interests you, is that the cryptid writing? Or like, you know, where did you, where did you start, I guess, and where are, you, where are you now? You know, I've always been interested in the interactions between humans and animals. You know, what, what's our place in nature? And, you know, as a result, cryptozoology has been fascinating to me for a long time. The first story that I wrote on cryptozoology was actually about uh, sea serpents in the Pacific Northwest where I live. And that story was actually picked up by Reader's Digest. You don't get much better uh, praise than that, being Reader's Digest. And um, that was in like 1985 or 86, a long time ago. Um, but I've always been interested in the way people and animals interrelate, whether we're talking about uh, hugging elephants in Thailand or the way people bring crickets in China to the town square and they have cricket fights the same way they would do rooster fights in uh, Central and South America, for example. Um, that's my bag. So when you're talking about Sasquatch, now we're talking about something that's actually could possibly be a relative of ours. At any rate, this is sort of like the grand kahuna of how we relate to the natural world. So that's a great topic for a writer like me, and apparently for a writer like yourself. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that uh, I, I've been fascinated for a long time, you know, growing up in the Pacific Northwest and loving camping and hiking. It just sort of makes sense. Like, that's where those stories get passed around is at the campfire, I think. Right. And I think, that you know, it's funny because that's where they started as well is you know being passed around so it's very yeah. it's very interesting how it's kind of evolved and now it's just this big thing in pacific northwest culture but it's like an unstoppable force almost at this point that's really true and you know you're absolutely right about it being of uh, the stuff that myths are made around um there's just something about that topic that's fascinating to uh we people uh, i always joke that i think we need sasquatch more than sasquatch needs us <laughs> so yeah, a large part of our, our mythos is based around this wild person of the woods, whether they're malevolent or whether they're benign. 
and kind of like you know they know more than we do about how to get along. Uh, you know, there are two. I see I see different stories that go either way with that kind of portrayal. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that you know, especially the the legends around here. I've seen like you know them as kind. I've seen them as protectors of the forest, and you know, I'm I'm very curious as to how it has evolved into what it did, and you know, when it had those categorical shifts into something more more scarier, more violent. Because uh, I, I, you know, I'm not sure that's how it started, but you know, in my in my uh, book, the uh, Sasquatch Seekers Field Manual, I talk about a study that was done of all these different tribal perspectives uh, in the Northwest on Sasquatch. One guy looked at I forget how many tribes, but let's say a dozen different uh, Northwest tribes, and kind of called their uh, portrayal of Sasquatch into a chart, actually. And in that chart, you can see that some tribes believe that this creature throws boulders. Uh, some people believe it steals children and eats them or takes wives. It's very interesting that not very few of those traits, though, are shared all the way across the board. For the most part, I think it comes down to they live in the mountains and they're really large. That's about the only shared perspective on the whole thing. So even amongst the tribes who seem to be the keepers of the wisdom on uh, Sasquatch, there's very different uh, images that they're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So now you've done you've done a lot of research on the subject, and I've heard you refer to yourself as a fence sitter before. So if you had to put yourself on the scale of skeptic to true believer, uh, tell us a little bit about where you sit. Well, I do tell people that I'm a fence sitter. You're absolutely right. And that's because I think that there's clearly something out there. I mean, I've talked to and I haven't personally seen uh, the being Sasquatch, not yet, but I've talked to lots and lots of reputable sources who have seen something. People who actually would know what they're talking about, you know, outdoors people or hunters who aren't likely to miscite a bear or an elk or, or something like that. Uh, on the other hand, our own how we document this has been really pathetic. In other words, I wouldn't go to court with the evidence we've gathered so far. So that's really the main theme of my, my book is to get people to take this all a little more seriously and bring in some real proof that will stand up to scientific scrutiny. So, yeah, I'm a fence sitter, but I guess I'm, I would say I'm leaning towards the side of there's got to be something out there that people are seeing. Yeah. What would be, uh, you know, you talk about how we need to improve the the way that we're measuring data or like, you know, that we're documenting these sightings. What would be like if you had to give one or two key pieces of advice to the people who are out there squatching or, you know, whatever, what would, what would you tell them? Oh, yeah. Well, the first thing I like to tell people is we're incredibly cavalier with how we treat evidence. I've talked to a number of people who have actually gathered Sasquatch uh, hair samples. And then I say, well, that's great. And they say, well, we sent them off to a lab. And then I get really excited. That's really great. And what happened? Well, we never heard back from the lab. It's like one of those head, forehead slamming moments. Yeah. And then I go, well, send some more of those samples to a more reputable lab. And then they go, well, we've used them all up. <laughs> so I, I like to tell people that when they have evidence like that, it's literally priceless. I mean, there's no way you can put a, a dollar amount on how valuable that is. And it should be tr treated as such. Uh, you should not be let, you know, let loose. You need to have a, establish a chain of custody, as they call that in kind of a crime scene uh, studies. 
Someone needs to vouch for that this thing is here. It's been here all along. It hasn't been adulterated or modified or switched, for that matter. And, you know, it, and records should be kept on where this stuff is. I read recently, well, not that recently, but within the last two years, that they revisited this famous bone from a hand that was in a lamasari in uh, Tibet. It's called the Pengboshe hand that was believed to be a yeti. You may know already about this. So they did a DNA test on it. The thing that's amazing is it sat on a shelf in a museum in Scotland, uh, in Edinburgh, I think, for something like 30 years. But, you know, everyone knew it was there. They just basically went over it, dusted it off, and submitted it for testing. It wasn't like, well, it's around here somewhere. It was on. It was in custody. And that's where this stuff belongs. Yeah, I remember reading about that and being fascinated by it that it took them so long to do that. And then there's another story relating to Bigfoot. Have you have you read at all about Peter Byrne? Yeah, I met him once a long time ago. Yeah, so I just read the story about him, uh, you know, kind of hassling the FBI back in the 70s to get them to oh, test yeah. this sample of Bigfoot fur. Um, and it's funny, so he's, I think he's going to be coming on the program at a later date. I just spoke with him this morning, but it, oh. his story is fascinating. I feel like that's, that's the kind of work you need to do if you want to get people to actually look That's at your right. stuff. And he's the real deal. When you do talk to him, please say hi for me. See if he remembers who I am. I, you know, I wrote a smaller book called uh, Field Guide to the Sasquatch. I think it's about 50 pages in length uh, in 1992. And that's when I met Peter. Uh, I was kind of suddenly thrust into this world of people who are actually, you know, professionally... Uh, mounting the search for Sasquatch or Bigfoot. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a very, very interesting story. And, uh, you know, it, it is interesting. So we've seen that story. We've seen the story about the hand. And then there was another one about the, you know, the Tibetan government still funding uh, searches for the Yeti. So, it, you know, there is something that draws people to these sort of myths and legends. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, we've talked a little bit about hair samples, but, you know, so apart from like an, an HD video, which you know, even even that can can be forged to some degree, what would be your silver bullet piece of evidence that would that would knock you straight off the fence? You know, it's really hard to determine what that is. I mean, obviously, there's a whole camp of people who think we actually need a cadaver. You know, if you go, I yeah. used to work in a division of fishes at the Natural History Museum in Chicago, and they just had an enormous room full of jars with uh, alcohol and preserved what they call type specimens to, you know, establish the existence of all these zillions of different species of fish. Well, the old school thought is in order to really establish the existence of this creature to get science to admit that it exists, we need something like that. We need a Sasquatch cadaver uh, preserved and free to study. I don't necessarily think that's true. Uh, we do need, though, really well-documented evidence. And that ranges from actually, uh, you know, eyewitness reports that are actually professionally gathered uh, and, and signed off on. You can't have someone saying, well, gee, I didn't really say that after the fact. You need to have that uh, established and, you know, sworn testimony. Uh, that's one level of believability. And it's amazing to me how many of those there are, but a lot of them kind of boil down to, uh, yeah, I seen them, but they can't really tell you much more about the, the time of day, other things that were going on around this, the same time, 
uh, longitude and latitude and all that sort of stuff. That sort of is dropped out of the telling. So I actually give instructions in my book about how to interview people and how to get what's most important out of an interview like that. If you had enough credible witnesses, and credible is the key word here, I think that would actually go a long ways. People could actually start determining, well, what time of day is the best time to, to actually have an encounter like this? What kind of habitat is favorable? Are there other signs that might lead you to believe that you were in the presence of a Sasquatch uh, before or after you've seen one? That sort of stuff. We just don't have that. And as a result, so much of it is just conjecture at this point. It kind of is easy for some people to dismiss this as a make-believe. Yeah, and I think that part of that comes from, too, you know, there's just a flood of of bad bad reports and, you know, bad, bad faith efforts as well to try and prove the existence. So you get a lot of fraudulent materials. Um, and, you know, I'm curious what you think about, you've got some of these programs on like the History Channel and, and some of them that are, you know, a little campy and not necessarily, I don't know what you would think of as, as good research. You know, they're more built yeah. around getting ratings. So how well, do you think that, that affects the legitimacy? Yeah, I hate to say it, but those shows, however well-intended they are, are basically entertainment. You have to have a, something that breaks right before the commercial to make you want to come back after the commercial. So just the way they're, they're kind of edited and put out there for public viewing kind of makes them a little less uh, authoritative than you'd like them to be. They're entertainment. I always yeah. like to remind people of that. Um, on the other hand, there are all these things like footprint casts that have been made, and you know, many of them are showing features that are really hard to just dispute as outright outright fakes. Uh, ironically, though, there are a lot of fakes. It's really easy to carve an enormous footprint uh, uh, out of plywood, strap it on your foot, and go stomping around in the mud. And people do that from time to time, just to you know, raise a ruckus. But uh, there are also ones that really show the degree of flexion of the foot and these dermal ridges, you know, what we would, you know, sort of the fingerprints of, of the foot, if you will. And those would be really hard to fake. In fact, you might as well just be forging $20 bills. You'd have an easier time. Yeah. So you think that uh, essentially the, the 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 overwhelming amount of of, of fraud has kind of like minimized the the fines that would you know that could actually be credible just because they're they're in bad company essentially yeah definitely and then every now and then it seems like every decade there's somebody who pops up who says they actually have the body and they're going to show it off you know most recently it was in a texan and where did he go with the body this is key number one he was showing it in las vegas <laughs> at the smithsonian in las vegas so those people do like to get out there, probably because it is such a controversial subject. If you're dying for attention or you're hoping to make a fast buck, that's a legitimate way of going about it, I think. Yeah. So, you know, with with all this this uh, dearth of you know eyewitness reports and and castings and all that, what is the most I don't know, uh, convincing argument that you've heard or convincing story you've heard from somebody that you've met uh, for the existence of, of a creature like this out in the wilderness? You know, I think it's actually the, the sheer volume of people who have experiences 
with Sasquatches. That's very impressive to me. I think if you really came down to it, the best evidence we have are footprint uh, sightings or casts and eyewitness sightings, eyewitness reports. You know, I spent two years traveling around Washington State uh, funded by a group called Humanities Washington. I would go to a public library or a community center or what have it and, and uh, give talks about this need for more authoritative evidence uh, all over the state. It was a great way to spend two years. Well, in those talks, just about every one I gave, there were three or four and maybe even five or six people who had first-person encounters with uh, Sasquatch and wanted to talk about it. A lot of these are not ones that you're going to find in the databases of the Bigfoot field research organization or anyone else online. In fact, I actually felt like I was hosting kind of an AA meeting or something. <laughs> created a safe environment, and people would say, I really haven't told this story to many people before, or this is something that happened to me as a little kid, and I didn't think much about it. Um, but, you know, now I want to share. So these were sincere reports. They weren't people. You can tell when someone has told the same story many times, you know, attention getters. It, it has a different air to it, a practiced kind of speech, like an oral tradition. On the other hand, someone who hasn't told the story a lot, they might be clumsy at it or they get very emotional about it. It's actually a very believable and I believe authentic moment when someone does something like that. And to me, that's the largest volume of, it's almost like uh, people who believe in Santa Claus, if you will. If there were enough of them, there must be something behind that belief. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it's really interesting, right? So we do have this uh, perception that, you know, Basically, if you if you believe in Bigfoot, you're crazy, right? Like that's a that's a big thing that I think stymies a lot of people. And especially when you get when we talk about the lack of real research, you've got uh, it, essentially if you start studying Bigfoot in an academic sense, a lot of people will call that career suicide. Uh, so yeah, you know, I, I wonder like where where do you think this sits, and you know what what could people do if they want to support this more? Well, that's where I think citizen science comes in. That's kind of a, a new concept, if you will. I'd say maybe over the last 15 or 20 years, people are starting to rely on data gathering by trained citizens. They don't have to be the experts. They just have to be the experts at gathering data so that they can be used by an expert, whether that's an, a primatologist or a human physiologist or what have you someone with those initials after their, their names so they can lend credibility to the study. Because as you say, it actually is kind of career suicide. I've heard lots of stuff, including our much beloved but, but no longer living Grover Krantz would say that he was held back from academic advancement because of his interest in Sasquatch. It's really a, a something that academics do have to think about. I, you know, I worked at the University of Washington in uh, one stage of my career, and I love this expression. They say, when they're trying to put down a researcher, they say, he's not highly regarded, <laughs> which is basically the polite way of saying he's full of it, you know. But being highly regarded as a Sasquatch expert is going to be difficult. 
hope. Now, if what they're working with is is uh, scientifically gathered evidence, as opposed to what I call I seen them kind of reports, uh, that lends a little more credibility to it all. And that's where you have people like Jeff Meldrum uh, in Idaho who are able to to lend a little bit more of a scientific error to what they're doing. And that's really important. I think maintaining a relationship with a scientist who's going to work with you as opposed to trying to bury it, that's a real key. And right now we have precious few of those people out there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just, you know, I think it is, it's, it's, a, it's a move that's hard to undertake, uh, especially if you're in that field. It's just, it's not an easy path for people to go. That's right. But I do have to say that it's funny to me, you know, laboratory experiments, DNA testing is expensive. You know, it's not something that I'm going to be bankrolling out of my, my uh, personal accounts. But someone who actually is doing stuff already, you know, uh, a genetics lab or something at a university where they're set up to, well, let's just slip in a few more samples. If you had, if you could recruit someone like that as your ally, it would be really in, invaluable. You know, there's an enormous study that was done of all these, I forget the exact number, I'm going to say 30-some hair samples of uh, the Yeti and of Sasquatch that were collected from people who are fairly reputable submitted, the, submitted these. Uh, that was all done, and it was actually funded, I think, through uh, the BBC, of all things. So uh, British Broadcasting actually forked over the money for that. But that must have cost tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to pull off that study. Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, if there's an interest in it, and, you know, unfortunately, I think if it can be commercialized, I think it's more likely to happen, right? Because you've got this this huge public interest, and you've got a lot of these places that are publicly funded. So if you can start to like drive up that interest for him like a corporate entity, they might be willing to do it. But it'd be more of a stunt, I think, than than real research. That's right. It's something that you would expect uh, Jeff Bezos to be funding or... Elon Musk, right? Like, that's like why isn't Elon Musk funding, funding the Bigfoot yeah. research yet? <laughs> you know what's funny, though? When you think about it, and I saw this a lot in fisheries where I was working uh, in that channel, um, we, we, we basically fund the studies that are of economic importance to us. You know, there's zillions of studies about salmon, for example, because we eat salmon. There are in the same streams, there are dozens of different kinds of fish that aren't studied at all. We basically just know they exist because we don't have an economic importance. We don't have a price tag to put on them. Now, the same thing is true with slugs and snails. Lots of studies on how to get rid of them but our actual native species, all we know is their names and that we collected one one, one time. So, yeah, it's, it's easy to dismiss unless there's a real uh, rationale for why we need to know this. If it just remains among sort of the stories you tell around the campfire, it's going to be really hard to get funding for that kind of research. Yep, absolutely. Now, with the, uh, you know... Going, going, uh, switching gears a little bit to the more, to to the more stunty aspect of the myth. Uh, you know, yeah. it's it's had a huge prevalence in modern media, from you know, like books to television shows to films. And I'm curious, what's your favorite adaptation, or if you have any that you like? 
You know, I absolutely love. I absolutely love this film, Harry and the Andersons. Oh, that was mine too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. And some of the other ones. Uh, what's that one called? Uh, is it? I guess Willow Creek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like, a recent oh, one, right? Blair Blair Witch Project Part Two. I, I don't really feel that they d- really do much in terms of playing off the mythos, other than "Ooh, this is scary stuff." Uh, whereas Harry and the Hendersons at least plays off the who is the higher being in this scenario. You know, is it is it Harry or is it the guy who is rabid about bagging one? And we don't know. So yeah. I like that for that very reason. Uh, I think there's actually an interesting topic here. If I can go off on a little tangent here, because after going around for two years speaking to people uh, all over the place, again, uh, within the state of Washington, um, I really sort of like came back with, why has this become such a popular thing now, more so than when I started writing about it in the 90s? So over the last 20 some years, it's become a cultural icon. If you go to the airport in Seattle, go to the SeaTac airport, there's a whole wall in a souvenir shop of Sasquatch products, you know, uh, everything from T-shirts and pennants all the way to uh, candies and air fresheners for your car. You know, Sasquatch has, be- has become this enormous cultural icon. And I've really put a lot of thought into this. I've tried to figure out why that is and why it's grown so much. Well, one of the reasons I really will put out there is that we live in this information age where you can Google just about anything. You want to find out who played the other woman in a movie, go to the Internet Movie Database and look it up in a minute. Um, But even with access to all that information, the information itself is not satisfying to us. We like mystery, and we sort of need mystery. We like to think that we know everything in sort of a cyberspace world. But when you come right down to it, we don't. If you were actually out in the woods without your uh, smartphone, you'd be in serious uh, trouble. So I think a lot of it has to do with our love of the unknown and our almost rejection of uh, cyber culture. That's part of what's fueling our interest in Sasquatch. This guy, he doesn't have a smartphone. He doesn't even have an answering machine on his phone. He doesn't even have a phone. And he's at a better place in terms of the natural world than we are. I think we really admire that. Yeah. And I think that there's something too, as well. And, you know, like you said, in this information rich era for, for, you know, something that has all these sightings and can't be found. And there is still a bit of an open mystery to it. Um, because, you know, much like the the oceans, we have a lot of unexplored forest and there's a lot that goes on in there that we can't possibly monitor. So it's, right. it's like one of the last open ended questions we have. You know, you've actually brought up in my mind an interesting thing because people often oftentimes ask me about where is the best place to see a Sasquatch? Well, I like to point out to them that you basically need two things. Things. You need the Sasquatch, of course, but you also need someone to see it. If you look <laughs> at a map of British Columbia, you know, a enormous province in Canada, just north of Seattle, uh, you know, there are little dots where Vancouver is, maybe where Victoria is, maybe a few other cities. But there's an enormous area that doesn't really have dots at all for human habitation. It's, uh, you know, wilderness. And you don't get a lot of 
reports from there compared to the reports you might get from uh, the fringe of an urban area, even in eastern Washington, in uh, wheat fields, for example, where there are people periodically or like to ha- likely to have encounters. So yeah. that's kind of an interesting limiting factor right there. If you have something that's avoiding people and can live in areas where there aren't people, you're not going to have that many sightings. Well, and especially when, if you look at, you know, a lot of the the research that people have done, they seem to think that it's, you know, very, there's very few of them left, obviously. And, you know, I grew up hiking in the Okanagan and we had a cabin like way out in the woods up in Canada. And you can go days without seeing anything. Uh, That's right. And there's like, there's plenty, we know there's plenty of animals out there, but you're still not seeing them, even though you're there. Um, And like, you know, I've run into a grizzly bear in the woods and you don't know it's there until you're right next to it. And it's already like... It's already a little bit of oh shit time <laughs> by the time yeah, you right. see it. So you know there was a study done in Washington where they sent wildlife biologists out into the North Cascade Mountain Range. Uh, they were thinking that grizzlies, which had once been eliminated from Washington State, were starting to come back in by way of Canada. So they're coming along the Cascades into Washington State from British Columbia. Well, they sent these people out, teams of researchers out. For a five-year study and during that time they found footprints they found scat they found clawed up trees uh, all this sort of secondary evidence but they never once saw a grizzly so yes they could determine that they were there but they did not have a sighting and if a grizzly can do that one only wonders what a large intelligent primate could be doing yeah, and of course, and imagine if we had never seen a grizzly bear and we were finding yeah, right. all these things and bringing it back. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it is funny living in Washington and having like that prevalence of culture. Like I drive by, uh, whenever I go through the pass, there's the trailer from Harry and the Hendersons is oh, now yeah, right. It's right. right next to a coffee shop now that's Bigfoot Coffee. So <laughs> it's, that's it's, right. it's really there. And actually, that's where they filmed the, uh, the Bigfoot Museum was on that site. Yeah, so, uh, it's a sacred site for us Sasquatch people. Yeah, I you know, there's a lot I of places like that. Frank here and tell you, I'm actually more fascinated by the mythos than I am by the biology at this point. Yeah, you know, I think I am too. I think that that's that's part of it, and I honestly think finding it would end up being a disappointment either way, um, because then it's explained. It's no longer a mystery, and you know, it's yeah. it, it all gets pinned down, and then it's it's part of the mundane at that point. So that's that's kind of what's interesting about cryptids. It's just the idea that there are these things that don't exist, or you know, that's or right. they haven't been proven. That's right. And you know, the cryptid of yesteryear is the commonplace zoo animal of today. So a lot of things that people had their doubts about the okapi, for example, that large sort of giraffe-like creature from the Congo. Or even some of the, I think it's the lowland gorilla people did not even recognize as a, an actual species until very late in the 1800s. So, yeah, we like to have some mystery that we can be working towards. But finding it, you know, it's kind of like me finding the perfect electric guitar or something. Then I'm <laughs> sort of like, oh, shucks, the hunt is over. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, so I'm it- currently working on on a book project, I'm in the very early stages of working on a book about uh, Cadborosaurus, which is a sea serpent that has been seen frequently in the 
the Strait of Juan de Fuca, the Strait of Body of Water in between Vancouver Island, Victoria, the city of Victoria, and Washington State. And that thing has supposedly been seen 300 times in the last 200 years. So really? I, I think that's also a fascinating when uh, when you have this enormous stretch of ocean where just about anything could be. Uh, that's a real fascinating hunt in itself. And I'm also very fascinated with why people are sort of fixated on finding monstrous beings in the oceans. Yeah, and I think the oceans too, and it's the same thing as the forest, but even more so where I think they, you know, they're finding new stuff in the oceans every year. You get something like a goblin shark that does look yeah. straight out of mythology. <laughs> That's right. That's so. right. You know, a hundred years ago, when, when Jules Verne wrote 20,000 leagues under the sea, I guess that was 1860. So 150 years ago, they believed that anything under about a hundred feet of water, that was a lifeless zone where nothing could exist in the pitch black of the abyss. And of course, that in the 1930s changed when they started sending a bathospheres down to observe what was down there in the dark. Uh, more recently, in the 1960s, they found those undersea volcanoes, first off the coast of the Galapagos, but more recently uh, off the coast of Washington State. And those are actual whole fonts of life, if you will, but just based around an entirely different kind of ecosystem than we would have expected. So yeah, we're just scratching the surface of what we know about our oceans. Yeah, I think that there's a lot, and you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of mythology about creatures that we're not sure about in the oceans as well, from megalodons to, you know, I mean, in, in lakes as well for like Loch Ness monsters, there, there's that kind of mythology everywhere. That's right. I'm just about to go off on a camping trip up to to uh, Lake Okanagan in BC to look for uh, Ogopogo, the mythic supposed inhabitant of that lake. Oh, that'll be that'll be a lot of fun. There's a I think they have a couple of a couple of fake ones in that lake as well, just to 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 scare the tourists as oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> so, I've seen photos of a, a large cement statue that you can have your if you go scuba diving, you can have your picture taken with Ogopogo. So <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, I, you know, I have one, I have one more question before we, we end off today, and it's a bit of a silly one. Uh, so I, I, I don't know if you've heard much about this, this raid on Area 51 that's happening. Have you, have you heard about this yet? Oh, I just saw a headline, but they, that was today. I haven't even had a chance to read up on it. So do tell. So there's this, this, this group of people who are getting together and, uh, you know, they're allegedly getting together on, on September, I think it's September 10th to mm -hmm. uh, run at Area 51 en masse to, quote-unquote, see them aliens. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yep. you know, just a quick thought, you know, what, what, do, what do you think about Area 51? What do you how do you think that's going to go? <laughs> you know, I'll help tell you, because actually I, was, I spent a week in Roswell, New Mexico one time, and I was amazed when I really went to the, muse the UFO museum there that the very Roswell incident, the crash of the flying saucer that led to supposedly, you know, bodies which are being hidden and all that. At the time it happened, it was in 1947. And there, were, of course, there was a cover up on that. But it wasn't a topic of discussion until much later, until about the 1950s, 
And then it really went nuts in the 1960s. You can see this kind of graphed on a, a map in their museum, uh, how public interest in the Roswell crash just grew and grew and grew. Well, I noticed that it also kind of mirrored our own distrust of the government. You know, in the 1960s, with the Kennedy assassination and all, there just was this rampant, you know, the government knows a lot, but it's not telling us. Uh, that was kind of the, the general belief. So I think a lot of our own paranoia, if you will, or our own misgivings about these top secret research things, is more of a product of modern times. It's actually grown out of our distrust or dislike for government. Uh, I've, I've heard lots of people tell me to get back to Sasquatch. Uh, you know, in the audience, there will people who go, of course they exist. The government has them in Area 51. Or, you know, it's like, it's like uh, they don't want us to know is kind of a general, general belief. And I don't know what to make of that other than what an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm really curious to see if anybody actually shows up for this and, uh, and to see to see what our government's response is to our to a bunch of people camping outside of Area 51, like a highly classified military installation, just yeah. seems like a. And you know, also like the thing that I I thought about today with the skeptics is like, you know, if, if you're going to see see the aliens, and you tell the government two months beforehand, and you believe they're capable of covering this up, what yeah, makes right. you think they're not going to move them? That's right. <laughs> It's like we the weapons of mass destruction in, in Iran <laughs> or in Iraq, I guess. Excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, there, that's the thing. I wish we could all become a little cooler in the way we approach stuff. You know, when I was saying before, he's not highly regarded. I think stunts like that are not highly regarded by the scientific world. And we need to be careful about that. I know in general, every time someone comes up with a fake sighting or fake evidence or whatever, it sets the whole field of serious cryptozoology back. You know, it makes it more like a pseudoscience, like jackalope land or something. And yeah. uh, there's actually a legitimacy that I hope we're not squandering with things like that. Yeah, well, especially with the amount of attention it's gaining, too. Like, it has, it has turned into a bit of a joke, so I could definitely see that. Yeah, it's a beer commercial. <laughs> yeah. Well, well th thanks so much, David. This has been really fun, and I've been really enjoying it. Uh, can you tell people where they can uh, find your other work and just give you know, a brief bit about anything else you're working on right now? Yeah, well, the Sasquatch Seekers Field Manual is published by Mountaineers Books. Now, to me, is a coup in itself because they're a very established publisher of hiking guides and mountaineering books, as their title implies. Uh, my book, The Eatabug Cookbook, is also in the, the hands of a nice publisher, 10 Speed Press, uh, down in California. And those are, believe it or not, really the only two of my books that are still in print. So for the other ones, you would pretty much have to start hunting around on Amazon or a books or something like that. Go out of your way to purchase them. I have a magnificent book about cockroaches called the complete cockroach that i believe is worth tracking down so <laughs> that's pretty much my story again and i'm sticking to it <laughs> um i don't know when or where at my book on sea serpents cadborosaurus the creature uh 
from the Strait of Juan de Fuca will appear or when it will appear. I'm still in the very early kind of planning stages for that one. But thank you for asking. Yeah, of course. And, you know, I guess in a way, it's kind of like it's kind of like one of those mysterious sea serpents. You don't know when it's going to appear, but it'll it'll be there eventually. (laughs) That's right. You know, my favorite quote, which I think applies to a lot to Sasquatch as well as sea serpents, a person I was speaking to up in British Columbia said looking for a sea serpent is like trying to find 65 needles in 75 haystacks. So I say, keep your eyes peeled. You just never know when you're gonna, when and where you're gonna find what you're gonna find. Yeah. Well, thanks again, David. And you know, hey, if you ever want to come back to talk sea serpents, we could. Uh, and it's on our list to cover later on down the line. So we could absolutely. Oh, absolutely. That. that would be fun because you know what? This is my my ending tease. I think I've actually seen one. That's it for Cryptids Decrypted today. Big thanks to David for being our first guest and for such an interesting conversation. If you enjoyed what you heard, consider checking out patreon.com slash macashton to support future episodes. We've got another one coming in two weeks where we'll be doing an in-depth analysis of the Bigfoot legend from its inception to present day. Another reminder that in addition to wonderful amateur podcasting about the world of cryptozoology, I also write a fictional action-adventure series about a drunken monster hunter. For more info on that, just check out macashton.com slash whiteout or search Whiteout Ashton McCauley on any site they sell books. Thanks for listening. See you next time.